1: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have... The, um, Jacob, my, well, which is myself, and then we have Zane. Hello. So we're going to be your presenters um, for today's program of Green Left Radio. And just before we get on to what we have coming up on our program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wondryland of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. And that Free CR and Green Left Radio um, supports um, the fight back of Indigenous people um, fighting for their land and sovereignty. Now, to get, to, um, we have a pretty packed program and um, just one kind of small thing. This is potentially Zane's sort of last um, sort of program for a, a while because um, he's just recently got a new job. Um, so congratulations to Zane. Oh, thank you. And um, but yeah, we've definitely really appreciated all the um, presenting that um, Zane has kind of done over the years. And, and in fact, we hope to kind of see him again. Um, but obviously it would depend on his work situation and whether he's able to get some time to come in every now and then. So that would be great.
2: Yeah, Um, and thanks to everyone who tunes in and listens, and thanks to everyone who supported the Radiothon last week. Uh, yeah, 3CR is an important part of the lefty progressive landscape, and, uh, keep on, keep on supporting 3CR and tuning in to all the excellent programs that are on this station. Mm. Now, but, uh. And thank uh, you to you, Jacob. It's, yeah. Uh, it's always good coming in on Friday morning and, yeah, doing our little bit to contribute to presenting a, a socialist perspective, an eco-socialist perspective on various events.
0: Mm. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, appreciate the compliment, um, Zane. And now, while we're, while we're talking about the importance, I guess, of supporting FreeCR, um, I think, as far as I know, the radiophone is sort of still going I mean all our sort of all the respective sort of radio fund sort of programs done but we're still looking for as many kind of donations in fact we're still just a bit short of our target but we're hoping we'll probably be able to get um reach our target probably by the end of the week or next week just with some chasing up of some people. But yes, um, we definitely, um, if you haven't donated to FreeCR yet in the midst of our radiophone, I highly recommend you do. And you can donate by donating online on frecr.org.au or you can even call in to donate at 94198377. Now yeah so I definitely think it 's very important to keep community radio going, and so every kind of little bit counts towards um, helping support independent media now, to get on to some i guess some news stories and some recent developments that have happened in i guess in the past week in politics, I want to kind of bring listeners kind of attention to a hung um, to the hunger strike that is happening. Side, I guess, the Mitre um, inside the Mitre detention centre, where a number of refugees um, have been held in indefinite detention. Now, a number, of, at least, tw- at least a number of refugee, uh, at least 12 refugees at this stage, although it was more before, are, uh, I guess, are, are on um, hunger strike. And reading from the kind of media release, there has been serious concerns about some of the recent hospitalisation of a number of refugees who have been, um, who have had to be hospitalised in, at the Maitrekhan Detention Centre. And basically, I think there's, there's, the, the the refugees who are currently on hunger strike are basically demanding and fighting for their freedom, and I think we should support absolutely support them in any way. As you know, it's absolutely like um, we've kind of said this number of times before. It's absolutely disgraceful the government, the federal government's kind of policies towards refugees. This policy of indefinitely detaining refugees, and I think you know or we must um, stand in solidarity with these refugees who are stand who are on hunger strike at the Mitre detention center and stand up for their rights and in fact there is actually going to be a protest today um, called by refugee action collective at 4:30 p.m at, um, at 4.30 p.m. at the MITRE Detention Centre, which is based in Broadmeadows. So yeah, to get there, usually you have to drive there, but just for listeners information, you can get there by taking a bus from the Broadmeadows, um, train, um, station. But yeah, that's basically, I definitely recommend we need to get as many people Get many, many people out there to show their solidarity with the um, refugees who are currently hunger striking. And I think it will be very important that people get down to the protests. And so yeah, that protest is going to be happening at 4.30pm at the MITRE detention centre. Yeah, get amongst it. Right. So maybe I'll just pass on. Um, Zane wanted to kind of bring up a a bit of a, um, start a bit of a I guess a discussion. Uh, yes. Yeah,
2: so. Uh, Basquiat Sankara, who was the editor of uh, Jacobin Magazine, the left-wing publication, had an article published in The Guardian this week uh, basically saying that socialists and lefties should support nuclear power as part of the solution to the climate crisis. And uh, an old comrade of mine, Simon Butler, who I campaigned alongside in the sort of... Uh, Mid mid to late 90s, um, he's written a response uh, at Climate and Capitalism: Ten Reasons Why Climate Activists Should Not Support Nuclear. And here they are: Number one, nuclear is dangerous because they can you can have accidents and they can blow up nuclear waste water. It's a very thirsty technology. Whereas renewables are much lower use of water. This is important in a warming, drying out world. Uh, nuclear is slow. It takes forever to get the things approved and build them. Whereas uh, you can whack up a wind farm or a solar farm pretty quickly. Nuclear is not green. Uh, the claim that it's emissions free um, kind of avoids all of the Emissions over the whole process, mining, refining, construction, decommissioning, and waste storage. And that waste storage is a particularly important one because you've got to manage the waste for 100,000 years. So there's a lot of emissions involved in that for literally the next 100,000 years, which is far longer than uh, human civilization has uh, existed in any kind of um, meaningful, notable sense. Nuclear is not renewable. There's not enough high-grade uranium available for uh, nuclear power. Nuclear is expensive. Uh, It's it's ridiculously expensive compared to renewables. Uh, Nuclear power means nuclear weapons. Any nuclear power plant can be converted into a nuclear weapons producing uh, factory and to to get fissile material for bombs. Nuclear waste is forever. and there's huge amounts of it already from existing um, nuclear power plants. Uh, it's, it's no good adding to that. Uh, uranium mining is unsafe. And nuclear, number 10, nuclear means dispossession. About 70% of the uranium used for nuclear power plants worldwide is mined from the lands of indigenous minorities. As we know all too well here in Australia... Um, Aboriginal land rights um, has been re- really one of the key reasons why progressives and trade unionists and environmentalists have really uh, pushed back against the nuclear industry for for many decades now, because the stuff gets dug up from Aboriginal land against their expressed wishes, and then later people inevitably want to create high-level radioactive nuclear waste dumps also on Aboriginal land. So. Uh, Yeah, a good response from Simon Butler and uh, poor form from Basquiat Sankara trying to rally support behind nuclear power. It's not the solution to climate change.
0: Yeah, and I think, I guess one of my sort of observations about this push for nuclear power that tends to come from certain sections well, of the right, mainly, um, but of course, obviously now there is sort of sections of the left, like Bashkir Sankara putting forward against this argument is I actually think the argument for a kind of nuclear actually comes from i think, a lack of kind of confidence in um, building a kind of ma- uh, building a kind of serious client movement it 's almost like on one hand it 's almost like a way of presenting a solution to climate that doesn't actually necessarily challenge capital in any kind of meaningful way because basically people are kind of demoralised by the climate crisis, demoralised by the fact that, um, you know, the capitalist system right now is so, um, you know, so committed to... Burning coal, and of course, often the kind of argument that's kind of put forward is, "Oh, well, nuclear is actually better than coal and safer." Now, of course, maybe hypothetically, that let's say hypothetically that is true. Um It's still actually all the problems with nuclear actually sort of rule actually rule it out, as it's because in fact the the main thing is a transition to nuclear actually just means preserving most of the capitalist kind of social relations and not actually doing any challenging of capitalist power and in fact it actually is also a a kind of lack of kind of confidence because it's seen as like this is comparable to the people in power and so this is the kind of type of transition we kind of need and I think that's where I think a lot of sort of arguments pushed by the right but also sections of the left kind of comes from in terms of nuclear power but I also think in terms of the Australian context I think the indigenous dispossession argument is I think a really important one because really, um, if we're going to actually build a kind of serious kind of climate movement, it actually has to be, indigenous people have to be part of leading the movement and actually putting forward the kind of solutions. And there uh, and in fact, we should also be, as part of a climate justice movement, we should be absolutely unconditionally supporting in, um, indigenous sovereignty and indigenous rights, um, especially worldwide. And, um, and, you know, any solution of conceding to nuclear power is actually compromising on the, on the whole question of Indigenous self-determination. Hmm.
2: Yeah. And, uh, there's a great film by Warwick Thornton called We Don't Need a Map. And it looks at, uh, the dispossession of Aboriginal people and the Australian flag and the Southern Cross. And, uh, it's a great doco. And, um, one of the things that, that that doco brings out is that Aboriginal people have this gift to give to (laughs) uh, white Australia once we actually pull our head out of our arse and are ready to receive that gift and that is a gift of Aboriginal culture. There's this ancient culture, this treasure trove of of culture that we're missing out on by treating Aboriginal people as second-class citizens but also the gift is about... Living sustainably with the land and healing the land, and uh, yeah, I think it's yeah, working with Aboriginal people in the in the climate and environment movement is not just about saying no to uranium, but also looking at uh, the type of work that authors like Bruce Pascoe have done, and saying that you know we 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 shouldn't be growing almonds and, and cotton in this country. We need to move back to Sustainable types of mm. uh, agriculture and and production as well.
0: Okay, well, um, I might just go. Um, we got we got our first interview coming up for our program, so we're unfortunately we're going to have to cut this kind of discussion a bit short because there's quite a lot actually in this topic to discuss. But definitely something we could potentially explore further in um, future sort of green um, in future green left kind of radio programs. But um, just for now, I'll go play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio.
1: or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
0: Alright, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line we have Sol Sabi, who is uh, a long-time member of the Jewish community in Melbourne, and also a long-time activist. And we have him on the line um, on our program today to actually talk about the kind of state of kind of Israeli politics, which is sort of something that doesn't necessarily um, get covered in um in the media much especially within left media and we um and of course they just recently kind of had elections in March um so yeah good morning soul
3: good morning um you seem to have an echo
0: ah uh, can uh, you should be able to... that that's me it's uh, zane as well oh sorry i forgot to put um zane singh on <laughs> that's why there was an echo so So, I guess to kind of, um, I guess start off um, before I guess we talk about the kind of implications, I guess, of the recent elections in Israel that happened in March this year, I guess I want, I want to, um, I want to see just for listeners' information, what can you guess tell us about the background of Israeli politics, and I guess what are sort of some of the sort of driving sort of issues um, um, that sort of is in the background for a lot um, of of Israeli politics.
3: Well, as you can tell by my accent, I was actually born there and lived there for the first 16 years of my life before actually heading to Sydney. So I've only been in Melbourne since 1976, but for somebody who is an old um, bloc, not that long ago. Anyhow, the main thing about his early politics is it doesn't fit any morals. It doesn't fit. A lot of people think of Israel as having Israel in their head. It's a very weird country politically in the sense that, just to give you one example, uh, in Australia you can look at the uh, very left-wing parties like um, Socialist Alternatives, then the Greens, then the... Labour Party, which is the left wing and the right wing, then the Liberals and the Nationals and all the others. But and you can think if somebody if somebody tells you their politics, you can usually guess where they're fit. In Israel it's a lot more diffuse. People are all over the place because what holds the country is often tribal allegiance, people are not rusted on to their political parties um and um therefore people outside often get it wrong when trying to work out what's happening there
0: and i guess um what can you, I guess, now, I guess, what can you tell us about the results, I guess, of the Israel elections? There's been a lot of, um, I guess, talk in the media, um, um, especially since Benjamin Netanyahu, Na- who's kind of been the steward of um, Israeli politics and kind of like mm-hmm. the face of it, um, and he's now been actually replaced by a new um, Prime Minister called um Fasli Eli Bennett, or if I'm pronouncing his first name correctly, uh, although you can probably correct me. And yeah, what can you, I guess, tell us about some the recent sort of Israeli elections and the implications there?
3: Well, the first thing to notice is that Israel didn't have one set of election. It had basically four in a row, with just over about six months between them. In fact, I was there uh, two years ago in September, and they're already having uh, well, I was there from um, July to, se- to September, and they were having um, their um, second round, but they had the third and fourth round. The main thing that happened is that nothing happened. The changes were minute, because in Israel there you look at the two blocks, the ones who were for Netanyahu, and they were against Netanyahu. And in all of them, basically, what happened was that the Netanyahu forces didn't have the numbers, so, and they had to do all sorts of tricks to keep on going. And even in this one, neither um, side managed to get a majority the reason the, neither side couldn't get a majority is Israel, until this time, was such a racist country that the Arabs, the Palestinian Arabs, who in the previous election had 15 out of 120, were not counted. So you can imagine, if the, if the Jewish population is split roughly 50-50, and you take 15 out of 120 out... There's no way any either side can have a majority. And it was actually amusing to see that Netanyahu suggested working with one of the Arab parties. but of course, once he made it, if you put the expression kosher or halal and okay and give them a you know a certificate of approval to work with the Palestinian party, then uh, the other side did exactly the same thing. And managed to form an alliance which had a majority. And after Lee Bennett, uh, Bennett is a very English name, his parents uh, changed it in the United States, so it's an American name. Uh, even though nobody in his family has ever been born in the United States, to the best of my knowledge. Um, uh, so they managed to form a a government which is held by one external force only, the favor of Netanyahu.
0: And I guess, I wonder, I guess... Um, before I go, just go into the kind of next question I was going to plan, I was planning to kind of ask you, I just want to find, um, find out a bit of a kind of elaboration on this. And this is just something I sort of observed in some of the kind of media kind of discourse, um, around Israeli politics. Um, but Benjamin Netinatu, um, I guess was sort of like the subject, I guess, of all these kind of scandals or corruption sort of accusations. And in fact, I've sort of almost heard that, um, in some, there was some sort of memes I saw posted, um, that sort of implied this, that, um, Benjamin Natanhatu was, um, you know, he was un, he was losing popularity and legitimacy because of this sort of particular kind of accusations, I guess, of corruption. And I guess I want to hear you, hear your side on, you know, what is actually kind of happening, what is that, what was actually kind of happening there.
3: Well, there, the, what, what happened was that he wasn't losing so much support amongst his own supporters but the other side became so fo- the mass movement that developed because of the correction- corruption managed to coalesce all his opponents from the left and to the ro- and the right to form a government uh, I mean I just can't imagine we may, or any Australian example if um, One Nation and Socialist Alliance and the well forget about Socialist Alliance but One Nation and the Greens and the Labor Party all coalesced against um uh, somebody like um say Tony Abbott because they they found A particular aspect so opposing that they all combine against them, and that's what happened: is that parties to the right of the Likud and um, Bennett is definitely more right-wing than Netanyahu. uh, combined with people who would fill very nicely in um, sections of the Green or or the left wing of the Labour Party. Just to get rid of him, it was, and it became almost a national obsession for so many people, and it forced all those people to coalesce together. And I keep on telling people that if uh, Netanyahu, uh, or Bibi if you want to call him by short nickname, uh, if he was to die from the coronavirus tomorrow, the government will fall because that's the only. The fear that he will come back is the only thing that holds this government from all sorts of angles together.
0: And I guess, because um, you mentioned, I guess, um, um, the left-wing kind of parties, and I guess that brings me into kind of the question, I guess, what is, I guess, the kind of state, I guess, of left-wing parties in Israel? Um, especially, I guess, a common observation about Israeli politics, and I mean, this comes from, I guess, my own observations as well, is that it is overwhelmingly, I guess, right-wing, especially in the context of the occupation of Palestine, but, of course, there's also little space for the left, including, I guess, the soft kind of non, non-socialist kind of left, like something equivalent to the Labor Party um, or, or, even the, or even the Greens. So, yeah, I want to hear kind of some of your comments up there.
3: Well, basically, if you like it Israeli politics, first of all, you have uh, the Palestinian parties, which, of course, on the Palestine issue... Uh, tend to be, or, or on the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel, especially not to, not necessarily the rights of Palestinians uh, in the occupied territories. Uh, obviously, more to the left than any other parties. Uh, so that includes the actual right wing on everything else. Uh, United Arab Party, which is now in the coalition, and the conservative Muslim party, but of course they look after the rights of their own members, who are often Bedouins and very oppressed sections of, even within uh, the Palestinian Arab community in Israel. Then you have um, um, the most left-wing party in the country, is probably Balad, the Palestinian party which is the one that has popularized the slogan of a state of, of all its citizens, which in Australia will be taken like nobody in Australia, if you say Australia should be the citizens of all Australians, nobody will say that you are left wing. Uh, I can imagine Pauline Hanson supporting it, but in Israel, it's an extreme left wing position that very few people support. Then you have Hadash which is based on the communist party with who um, not too good on Syria but on almost everything else they have very good policies then you that's the first um, members of the Knesset and then you have the two sort of left, centre left people who would coalesce within the Labour and the Greens and that merits, which is Traditionally been as an anti, a, a Zionist anti-occupation party, it and because, as I said before, there are good people and bad people in almost every party. They have a person who are concerned to be a, are considered to be a right-wing general amongst their members, but they also have uh, Gabbelowski, that people in Australia might recognize the name she was the lawyer who acted for most palestinians including i had a very good human rights lawyer with an incredibly good record and my friend Mosi raz who's also been at every demonstration and, yeah. and on uh, almost all issues um, participating so that that At the moment, uh, both those parties are talking about voting for this incredibly racist legislation that bans uh, Palestinian Israelis from marrying people in the occupied territories and bringing them across. And they are going to do it on the condition that the Arab party is going to vote for it. So if there's one way to describe Israeli politics, it's mix and match.
0: Hmm. And, um, I guess the next kind of question I guess I want to go to, because you've um, been, um, making reference to, guess, the whole Palestinian issue. And I guess, what can you tell us about how the, um, how much does, I guess, the, the question of Palestine, i.e., like the, um, the ongoing occupation and, I guess, all the kind of issues that kind of arise from that, how does it influence, I guess, the general kind of political landscape within Israel, especially in terms of, attitudes, which you kind of alluded to, uh, I guess, at the start in terms of your response to the kind of first kind of question?
3: Well, uh, the way I would describe it is it it has nothing to do with Israeli politics and it has everything to do with Israeli politics at the very same time. It's a contradiction. Uh, On one hand, no problems in Israel from the corona to the economy, to women's rights can be separated from the Palestinian issue because sooner or later it raises its head. It, it affects it. Uh, there was one, I mean, at the moment with the corona, if Palestinians are not vaccinated and it does reduce the effectiveness of, um, the very high rate of vaccination, the highest in the world of any significant country, um, inside Israel itself. So you have every issue. But on day to day, when people decide which party they vote, it wasn't an election issue. It was hardly mentioned. And as I keep, as I said before, you have people who are good on Palestine. In several parties, and you have people who are bad on Palestine in several parties. It's not, it's not like in Australia where the political continuum from left to right is fairly straightforward. It's uh, people jump all over the place, and Palestine it just doesn't get mentioned. But at the same time, as soon as you deal with the issue in depth, it raises its head. That's probably the best way I can phrase it.
0: Hmm. And um, Zang wanted to guess, um, the other presenter wanted to come in, I guess, with a question as well.
2: Yes. Um, so we uh, played an interview last week from Jeff Halper. And he was yeah. talking about the the one-state solution and basically one state for all and you've mentioned before this left-wing party. I, I didn't uh, catch the name of ne- them.
3: Meretz or Kadash or Balad.
2: Uh, Balad and and their yes. policy of all citizens. Is that what that is a reference to?
3: No, this this is actually even at the lower at the lower level. It's one. I mean, they're they're standing in an election in Israel, and of course, the Palestinian outside cannot. But they're saying. That Israel shouldn't describe itself as a Jewish state, but as an Israeli state, that all citizens have the same rights. And you can see at the moment with this uh, legislation that comes to renewal every year, and it's due to be renewed next next uh, month, where. Pol- citizens of israel well mainly well of course who want to marry palestinians who tend to be pal- palestinians themselves they cannot marry somebody in the occupied territories uh if they and bring them across while every other israeli citizen can do it mm-hmm. so it is it, as uh another Arab and Knesset member from a different party, he says Israel is democratic for Jews and Jewish for Arabs. Hmm. And so Jewish for Palestinians. I mean that's not the term he is, but that's the way I would say. So Balad saying let's start before we look at the occupied territories, we look at a foreign policy issue. Let's start by making everybody in the country equal. This is like a Martin Luther King type demand.
2: Hmm. And Jeff Halper, in his in his talk about a one state solution, he says young people in Israel. This is the idea of one state for all, where Palestinians get to vote in Israeli elections. It just becomes one country. Is is quite yeah. radical to a lot of people. But Jeff Halper is saying to a lot of young people, it's not radical at all. It's like an obvious way forward and something they're very ready for. Are you able? It, it, do you agree with that assessment? And what what, what, uh, what uh, hope do you see for progressive change in, in in Israel?
3: Well, at the moment, for many years, I keep on saying um, you know, thirty, forty. I keep on saying that each generation, each new year at school uh, is more, right wing than the previous ones. There are demographic reasons as well as others, uh, because who has more children and all that, and leftists tend to have fewer children. But the one thing I agree with Jeff is that a lot of young people, I mean, the People who can remember Israel before the occupation have to, are in their sixties or, or even older and um, so you have a situation that people who their parents grew up under the, the occupation and who don't who take it for granted, but they say until we fixed it, um, we can't do move forward. And they don't have the pre-1967 fears of a weak small level. So the, I would say that while I don't agree with Jeff's assessment, I think there is a potential there. And if anything would move, it would be the young people. But I don't see enough um, enough signs of it. Hmm.
0: Well that kind of goes into a kind of next question, this is sort of something you were kind of interested in guess in talking about when we 're corresponding for the guest the interview is I guess talking I guess about this kind of question i guess of political attitudes of amongst the Jewish community, i guess in both australia or and in Israel, and I guess in relation to kind of israeli politics and I guess these i guess there's sort of like there's almost like a there 's almost like an argument i guess an assumption that I guess Israeli Jews all kind of uncritically back the government or and identify with Zionism, I guess, you know, which has also led to some, uh, w- some weird situations like in recent developments where, you guess, you had the case of the Israeli falafel sh- uh, shop in Brunswick being unfairly plastered as being apologists for the Israeli complication. Mm-hmm. And I guess... I want to sort of hear, because you've also made some observations of this on your Facebook about some of all these sort of dynamics that kind of relate to this. And I guess, what is some of your comments on some of these different sort of elements that I guess in play in terms of um, how, you know, Israelis um relate to um relate to politics, especially I guess in Australia. And I guess actually before I get you answered, there's also one other sort of thing I just remembered off the top of my head, but there was actually an interesting thing in Germany, but um this is sort of relates to um I remember kind of hearing that um even there's such a there's sort of this whole thing about there's this whole kind of thing about anti Semitism within Germany that it's gone to such a sort of extreme to the point where they even accuse um Israeli Jews who are just, um, who probably might not necessarily support Palestine at all, but just trying to organise kind of events that are kind of critical of the Israeli government has also sort of um, created situations where there are accusations, I guess, of anti Semitism thrown around. So, yeah, that might just put in, but maybe hopefully that all links with what the question I was sort of asking and, yeah, hear some of your comments on some of all those sort of different sort of elements.
3: Well, um, Situation in Israel, as I said, it's very weird. And one of the things I would argue, because I spend a lot of time on Jewish discussion group, or at least one of them in, in Australia, is that most Australian Jews are not as aware of Israel as they think they are. In fact, the average Palestinian would be far more aware of the ins and outs of Israeli politics than uh, the average Melbourne uh, member of the Melbourne Jewish community. And it's a guess. In Melbourne, the Israeli community, uh, if, unless they are religious, is very, very distinct from the Jewish community. I mean, most of the Melbourne Jewish community or a large proportion live in a certain part of Melbourne around uh, Eastern Kilda, Caulfield, um, uh, that region, um, Elwood, etc. While the Israelis, I meet Israelis all over Melbourne, they are not particularly congregated in any area. And as a whole, Israelis in Australia have more or less more palestinian or at least open-minded attitude than uh, Australian members of the Australian Jewish community. So that's one thing. Uh, I don't think there's a point in looking at the way Israeli Jews, in Israel look at things because they're different. I mean, you do get people who, a lot of them have given up on Israel to come to Australia in the first place, whether they are particularly political. I know there's at least a couple of other Jewish restaurants, uh, Israeli restaurants, that are run by a political one, unlike the one in Brunswick, which is run by somebody who's much more sympathetic to the Palestinians, as far as I know. Um, so, but... What we have at the moment in Melbourne, and that's what I was alluding on uh, Facebook quite a few times, is a situation that there are some people, presumably on the left, and I assume they're not Palestinian but uh, of the rest of the Australian community, who have been targeting not only that falafel place, but other... Um, non-Zionist, and even there's an anti-Zionist, religiously anti-Zionist educational institutions, they've been targeted with graffiti, and that that almost verges on anti-Semitism. We attack people who have nothing to do with Israel, do not celebrate Israeli Independence Day, do not uh, teach Israeli Hebrew, they don't um, do anything that would associate them with Israel. And to stick a, a free Palestine, a slogan of support, of course, uh, uh, you know, to paint outside their school actually probably helps the other side more because it allows them to see, see, they don't care if you're Zionists or not, they don't like Jews. Mm. Mm.
0: All oh, right, so um apologies kind of, soul, but we probably might have to cut the interview a bit short. There was actually probably another question I wanted to get into, but unfortunately I don't think we have time now because we've actually got to start another interview, I guess, in three minutes. So I'll just leave you, I guess, an opportunity to kind of make, I guess, any final comments. We've definitely found this a very interesting um, discussion and really appreciate you being on our program. So, yeah, if you have any, I guess, final comments you would like to make.
3: Well, the, any comment I'll make... make would be by nature be very um, general. But I think people have to get used to the idea that when they hear something or or see something about Israel, they need to process it according to the Israel which is on the planet rather than the one in the head that would be my most important role, and I uh, do recommend people follow my Facebook where I do a lot of translation and commentary from a point of view which certainly does not support the Israeli government or the occupation or um, and very positive towards a a, de- a democratic solution for all the people of the area from the river to the sea uh, but it. The most important thing is to be informed and understand what's happening there and rather than to fit all molds, whether they're from like old people like me from Vietnam or South Africa or Zimbabwe or Bangladesh, some of us even remember that struggle, or Timor, see that this one is a weird one and people need to keep up with it.
0: Right. Well thank you very much, um Saul, and um yeah, it's been definitely a very interesting kind of discussion and um yeah, definitely full of learned a lot of different kind of thing um things about Israeli politics as a result of this discussion.
2: Yeah, thanks Saul.
3: Okay. Thanks,
0: right. thanks Sol. All right, we we're just um, having a chat with um, Sol Salbi, um, a member of the Jewish community within Melbourne and also a, a, bit, a big observer of Israeli politics, and it's also been a long-time activist um, for Palestine as well.
2: Amongst other progressive causes yep. in this town, yeah.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement, and we're going to go um, on to our next interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
1: 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates. Big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for.
0: So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On
1: 8:55 AM and on the web, 3cr.org.au
2: time in the,
1: the Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, Call the station on nine four one nine eight three double seven or donate online at 3CR.org.au forward slash donate.
0: 3CR Radiothon, community powered radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line we have Elena Garcia. Uh, Elena Garcia is actually a farmer based in. I'm sorry, I actually, I think it was part of so Queensland. You can introduce me. Um, you can introduce yourself. Of what, which part of Queensland you're from? But, um, Elena Garcia is a long time, is a member, I guess, of Socialist Alliance and has just recently been part of, um, producing a document called the Socialist Plan for a Rural and Regional, um, Code Recovery. Um, Elena Garcia is also one of the co-authors of the book, um, Sustainable Agriculture, um, which was, um, released by Resistance Books, which kind of gives a very kind of strong kind of anti-capitalist analysis of, um, agriculture. Um, so yeah, good morning, Elena. Good morning, Jacob. Okay. So um, the, the first, I guess, question, I guess, to kind of ask is to, to start off, I guess, a bit of the, this discussion we wanted, I guess, to have, you begin, I guess, the document by writing that regional communities across Australia are, free, are facing free intertwining crises, ecological, economic and social. And I guess... Can you give us, a bit, as a bit of a kind of background, give us a bit of an overview of what the nature of these kind of crises are, especially in terms of agriculture? All
4: right. <coughs> Sorry. Um, rural Australia has been in crisis for a long time because farm gate prices have been held down by the supermarkets so that farmers are to the point where costs of production are getting Greater than the price that they're getting for that, what they produce. The supermarkets are taking all the profits. So that means farmers are dependent on off-farm jobs. And increasingly, there aren't any. Um, and, <clears throat> and increasingly, the only ones there are are in the mining industry. And it's the mining industry that is the greatest risk to sustainable farming because the mining industry pollutes the water that we depend on. So that that's a crisis that's been happening since the late 70s uh, when Whitlam, for all the good stuff that he did, closed down the, uh, <clears throat> the boards that used to set a fair price for basic uh, commodities like eggs, milk and the rest. So since then, farmers have just been going broke and the government departments that used to support farmers with technical advice have also been closed down and privatised and contracted out. So that set the scene. Then climate change impacts started to hit. We've had droughts in New South Wales and Queensland that have been going for more than seven years um, that are just wiping out farming communities because farmers are are broke. Farmers don't get the dog. Um, It's only been since Abbott, sadly, that they've even brought in the farm living at Household Allowance that was the equivalent of the goals for Farmers, and originally you only got it for three years for your entire life. Uh, now they've increased it so that you can get it for a maximum of 10 years. Um, the problem is, is when you've got a drought that's extending to 10 years, at a certain point, that's it. You've got no income. If you've got no income, then your local community's got no income and communities are closing down. Um, So then on top of that, bonus, we got the pandemic. So a lot of communities now are surviving on mining income or tourism income. And with the catastrophic bushfires um, in December 2019, that was the first massive hit to tourism, followed by um, the over-allocation of water in the Murray-Darling, which meant that a lot of regional New South Wales towns literally ran out of drinking water, uh, which is also not a good look for tourism, um, and then you've got the pandemic. So suddenly, regional Australia has got no jobs, no income, businesses are closing down, young people have to go to the cities to work, um, which means that local services close down, um, schools, hospitals and the like. It's just a complete disaster.
0: Hmm. And... Um... I guess now going into, I guess, the, the next kind of question is, um, you know, the, um, part of the, you know, the reason, I guess, you produced this document was as a kind of counter to the kind of federal government's kind of gas-led kind of recovery, um, which has actually been, in, in some sense, actually been heavily touted as being good for farming, um, farming and agricultural rural, and rural communities. And I guess why should those, um, um, people in those communities oppose um, the federal government's gas-led recovery?
4: Well, my nearest town is Chinchilla. And Chinchilla has been run by the CSG industry for the past 10 years or more. And it's a great example. So what we got in Chinchilla was from going from an agricultural-supported town, we went to a mining town. So first of all, the house prices went through the roof so that you couldn't afford to buy a place here. Then the rental prices went up, so anyone on a low income couldn't afford to rent here. So we for a while we had people who were living in caravans at the local showgrounds, but a lot of people just had to leave town. Um, then local businesses, instead of getting a boom from the CSG industry, what happened was the CSG industry got all that stuff from Brisbane because it's cheaper. They get bulk, bulk disc discounts and they bring it up. Bring it out. So local businesses started going broke. At the same time, the water that was pumped out by the CSG industry has dropped local bores in the Surat Basin in some places up to 200 metres, right? So they're unsustainably using the water. In the process of bringing the water up out of the ground, it goes through the coal seams, which are full of carcinogens, which are fairly securely locked away in the coal seams until you force the water through them to bring the gas up and that brings all the carcinogens up to the surface and they're then stored in big dams. And what happens in big dams in floods is that all the water in, in the dams overflows and it goes down river, it goes over the farmland and those toxins are spread far and wide. And Chinchilla is up the top of the Murray-Darling Dar- Basin so any poisons up here are going to be working their way down. Um, and now, because the CSG industry is past the construction stage and down to the maintenance stage, that means that all the jobs that they had building it have shrunk shrunk down to a handful of jobs to maintain it. So all in all, it has been a catastrophe for Chinchilla and, and communities like us. And a lot of farmers from the Pilgate came up and had a look at uh, Chinchilla um, to see how we went with with the CSG industry, and that's one reason why they have backbones of steel when it comes to trying to stop it being established down in New South Wales. Hmm. So as far as extending that all over Australia, disaster. All the gas-led recovery is is a handout to corporate supporters of the LNP government. That's all it is.
0: Hmm. And I guess now we can go into, I guess, talking a bit now about, I guess, the kind of document it's, because um, you've given kind of like a very good kind of background to, I guess, um, some of the kind of issues. I guess what are some of the, what is, is I guess, the socialist kind of solution to, I guess, a number, um, these issues, and I guess what can you tell us about some of the demands and measures that you are kind of proposing as part of the socialist plan for rural and regional COVID recovery and why they are kind of necessary?
4: Well, <clears throat> I think you've only got to look at um, the success story of the pandemic, which has been the job seeker allowance, the COVID allowance that they gave to people, Um, even though it makes me laugh that it was an LNP government that was forced to do it. But the end result has been of giving people extra money to bring them up to the minimum wage, or at least to a living income. It's kept the economy going, and the economy's gone really well. So one of the most important things that we've put forward is that you should guarantee a living income, not less than the minimum wage, to everybody in regional Australia, employed or not, to keep communities alive and viable. Because we have to have communities out here. We have to have people here to manage the land, to look after our water catchments, um, to look after our environment, to produce clean food. And we can't be out here without supporting communities and businesses schools, hospitals and the rest. Um, and they found where they've experimented with giving people um, a, a, an income supplement, it, it brings people out of poverty. Well, it certainly did in Australia for the first time. People were brought out of poverty. Um, and in other places where they've tried it, they've found that people still keep going to work, they do everything they used to do, but suddenly they can afford to spend and that keeps their local businesses going and that keeps their communities healthy. So the first the first priority would have to be to guarantee a living income to everybody. Then you need to support farmers to transition from the environmentally genocidal industrial agriculture system to regenerative agriculture um, and arid-friendly crops to build drought resist, uh, resilience and to sequester carbon in soils because this is a huge tool we should be using to get carbon out of the air and all industrial agriculture is doing is destroying our the living life in our soils that feeds our plants it's destroying our insects, insect Armageddon which we've noticed out here even I'm out in the boondocks the headwaters of the Murray Darling and we've noticed a huge decrease in the insects that we have and there's no spraying around us um, and as a, you know, don't have insects, you don't have birds, you don't have everything that lives on insects so it's just um, an ongoing catastrophe. Um, And you need to put, you need to take water out of corporate hands. We've got to stop this water speculation and commodification of water that the Howard government brought in. We've got to put the deciding power over water allocation in the community hands, and we need to close the industries that poison water and make them pay to fix it. Um, And we also... What goes hand-in-hand with that is we need a federal ICAC, a Commission Against Corruption, that is independently funded and has the power to jail the criminals. Um, Because water is one of the most... Water allocations is one of the most corrupt areas for politicians. Um, There are very obvious links between who gets the water and who makes donations to the LNP and the ALP. We need to flush out the corruption. Um, Um, I I think they would be some of the major ones. There's a whole list there. There's a whole list of constructive solutions.
2: Yeah, Elena, um, hi, it's Zane here. The, the policy also looks at, uh, providing farmers with incentives to transition to arid friendly, um, crops and regenerative methods. Um, we will have to wrap up soon, but I was hoping you could comment on that aspect of the plan and, and what that would look like. Well,
4: one of the, <laughs> we have to look at how we farm, um, because it's linked with how we care for our environment. Um, and we also have to keep food affordable for everyone, which means that somehow we have to be able to give farmers enough money that they can make a living without working off farm. Now, in other countries, they have agricultural subsidies. In Australia, we don't. But what we do have is something that worked in the past, which was the the land army they used in World War Two, which paid... Set people out into the countryside to help farms produce farmers' work. Um, we should set something like that up, something voluntary with the federal government committing to pay people who, who volunteer to participate, award wages, award, commis- um, award conditions and full insurance because farmers can't afford to do it, um, board them, set up a way of... Um, of Tra- Travelling them around because a lot of farm workers seasonal work, so that farmers have the people who can help them switch to regenerative methods. Because regenerative methods take more workers. It's a lot more. Um, it, it, it just takes more work um, uh, than going out on your tractor and spraying fungicides and pesticides and and weed killers which happened to kill the soil mi- soil microbes. So we need more farm workers, but it's, a hu- it's hard work, so they need fair pay, and farmers can't afford to do it. So because it's a social benefit to have clean food and clean production uh, methods, and it's also a social benefit for people to have jobs and, and ways of gaining skills, then I think it would be a great idea if we put the money that we're presently throwing into the pockets of the gas industry
2: into paying for 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 this sort of a mobile workforce. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, The policy also looks at, um, I'm thinking you would probably be familiar with Raj Patel's work and this idea of the hourglass model of food production and distribution. We've got a whole bunch of farmers growing the food and producing it and then you've got a whole bunch of workers buying the food. But in the middle of this hourglass-shaped distribution model, is the supermarkets who control that distribution and they they give the farmers a low price for what they produce and then they charge a high price to the workers and they cream all this profit off and your um part of the the policy is looking at uh nationalizing the major supermarkets and converting them into cooperatives under farmer transport worker and community control um and I was hoping you could comment a bit on that aspect of this uh, of this new policy?
4: Well I, I think that's a pretty important demand really um, because the networks already there we need a way to um, get food to people um, and we need to take the profiteering out of it cut out the middleman so that the profits go back into um, trucking and farmer and community pockets rather than into uh, supermarket profits. So. I think the simplest thing would be to simply nationalise the setup that's already established, which covers the whole country very efficiently, and yes, put it into community hands, put it into the hands of those who use it. Um, the franchisees of Woolworths, they should be fairly compensated, that's only fair, maybe they stay on the help management, maybe not, um, but certainly we cut the corporate um, owners of Woolies and Poles right out of the picture, because all oh, they are are uh, ticks, really, leeches. Mm. we don't need them
2: (laughs) Mm, totally
4: the other thing that we need is to turn back the clock um, against the privatisation policies of of our major parties so we need to re-establish our rural banks that supply long term low interest loans to sustainable farmers and the businesses that support them Um, and we also need um, state insurance offices like the GIO so that we can take the profiteering element out of a loans and insurance policies mm. and and use them the way they should be used to help sustainable businesses survive because at the moment it's extremely hard. It's, the farmers are at the front line of climate change. Um, we're dealing with the droughts, the bushfires, the floods. Um, it's It's only getting worse. Um, and we need a hand, um, but at the moment we go to the bank, the banks are one of the worst enemies that farmers have because the, they gouge on on your, uh on the interest rates they supply, and insurance is becoming something that nobody can afford um, and that 's ridiculous that tools that should be available, not scalping devices
0: right well um elena um. Do, I'm just running out of time, I guess, now. is Do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments um, you would like to kind of make?
4: I, I really like this document because I think it's a major tool to put power back in the hands of communities um, and take it out of politicians, to turn things on their heads. Politicians should be accountable to their local communities. Um, in, but... At the moment, the only ones that are accountable are the corporations. And I think demands like the ones put forward in this plan are a way that we can all um, prosper and our environment can get a whole lot better and we can actually fix some of these major problems that we've got in front of us. So um, I, I would really strongly suggest to people, download it, have a look, um, see what you think. And if you like it, take it to your local councillor and, and, um, or next election, state, local federal, go and ask the candidates, will you support this? Will you support at least some of the slogans in this? Because these are a constructive way forward. Hmm.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Elena. And um, yeah, just for listeners' information, you can actually read um, the full document. It's available on the Socialist Alliance website, if you go to the Socialist Alliance website, or you can even go on greenleft.org.au, where it's also printed there. So,
2: yeah. And it's called A Socialist Plan for Rural and
0: Regional COVID Recovery. All right. Well, thanks for that, Zane. And, um, yeah, thank you very much, um, Elena, for being on our program.
4: My pleasure. Thanks very much for giving me a chance to speak.
0: Cheers, Elena. (laughs) Okay, so we're just um, talking to um, Elena Garcia, um, who is a, a, long, a, farming, a, a long-time farmer and also an activist with um, the Socialist Alliance who was part of developing the Socialist Plan for a COVID... Uh, well, this, uh, I think, what was titled again? Socialist Plan for Rural and Regional COVID Recovery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, as we kind of said before, you can read that document um, online on the Socialist Alliance or the Green Left kind of website. Now, just, um, just go play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to the Green Left access calendar, which we're kind of doing a bit late, but um, it's better late than never. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
1: From every corner of the land, womankind arrives! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly,
2: never you fear.
1: Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security.
4: We do not accept the denial of our
1: rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line, tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Um, the good news is now that the lockdown is kind of easing, um, we're now um, there are actually a number of upcoming rallies that are going to be coming up. Um, so just to give a bit of a plug. Um, if you haven't, um, the new international bookshop is actually having its big red book fair right now, and in fact, I think it ends today. <laughs> so it's going to be open from twelve to um, twelve noon to seven p.m., which is at the new Inter- um, the new international bookshop at Trades Hall, fifty four Victoria Street in Carlton. So yeah, um, that's going to be. Um, I definitely, if you want to get down some books, um, definitely recommend getting down to that. Now the next um, the next kind of event i want to sort of highlight is there's going to be um, a rally outside the um, inside the uh, outside the mitre detention centre in support of the hunger um, refugees who are currently on hunger strike inside the mitre so that's going to be happening today at four thirty p m at one fifty um, camp road in broad Meadows. Um and then the next kind of events that are kind of happening is on Tuesday, June the 29th, there's going to be an online forum, Journey to Obscurity, Indefinite Detention, The Cruelty and the Chaos of Our Refugee Policy. Um, I'm pretty sure that event is being organised, I think if you search, it's been organised by the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. So if you search um, Australian Democratic Jewish Society on Facebook, you should be able to get a, a link to the Zoom um, for that event. On Friday, July the 2nd, there's going to be a rally for peace, no war with China, and that's going to be happening at 10am at the Queen Victoria Market. And then on Saturday, July the 3rd, there's going to be a rally, say Faulkner's Outdoor Pools, um, at 10pm, not 10pm, um, 10am outside the um, Faulkner Leisure Centre, 79 to 83 Dukes Road and in Faulkner. Um, just um, to make a mention, well, because we talked about it last Friday, um, basically um, the Moreland Council is basically going to be cutting um, the, the outdoor pool of Faulkner, and so this has just been a local campaign that has kind of developed in order to save the pool from um, being closed down. And then on Saturday, July the 3rd, there's going to be a rally, Free, Free Palestine, 1pm at State Library, at 328 Swanson Street in the city. This is actually a rally that's been actually delayed twice because of the COVID-19 lockdown. So I think we, it'll be, definitely be fantastic if as many people get down there as possible. So time's a charm. Yeah, especially since I think in the context of the current kind of developments, um, the, C, the, the Israel has ended the ceasefire. So I think it, yeah, it's going to be even more important to attend the kind of protest. Um, and then on Sunday, um, 4th of July, there's going to be a film screening, My Survival as an Aboriginal. Um, that's going to be happening at 2pm at the Formberry Picture House, 802 High Street in Formberry. So to find details of that, just search up the film screenings for the Formberry Picture House. And then on Wednesday, July the 7th, um, there's going to be um, uh, an action, Mambu Mambu Day at 12 noon at Federation Square. On Monday, July the 12th, there's going to be a protest outside the magistrates court um, in Heidelberg, actually, at 9am. And that's going to be happening on Monday, July the 12th. On Friday... um, July sixteenth, there's going to be a film screening, Gaza fights for freedom. This has been organised by Green Left, and that's going to be happening at six thirty pm with meal from six pm. At ten dollars, such five dollars entry at the Resistance Centre, level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city. And then on Saturday, um, on July the seventeenth, there's going to be a forum, um, global north south. Um, to South in Climate Justice and Activism. Um, just getting who's organising this event. This is our uh, event being organised by Blockade IMARC, and um, that's going to be happening, oh, Sorry, I'm just getting the details again, because I've just lost it, that's going to be happening at 2pm at the library at the dock, 107 Victoria Street, Victoria Harbour, Promenade. And on Monday, July the 19th, there's going to be a ritual, 8 years too long, Free the Refugees, happening at 5.30pm at Lincoln Square in Swanson Street, which is just outside the Park Hotel. And then on Sunday, July the 25th, this is a rally that um, has been, also been, also got recently postponed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, it's going to be a Rally, Permanent Reasons, Not Discrimination, Rally for Refugee Rights, and that's going to be happening at 2pm, Sunday, July the 25th. Um, and this is, I think, going to be an important rally because it's been organised by, the, um, by a, lot of ref, um, a lot of members of the refugee community, including groups like Refugee Voices um, and, and so on. But it's also been supported by all the different broader um, um, activist groups that um, campaign and support refugees. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, um, that's kind of the events that are kind of happening at the stage. Is there any other events that am I might have forgotten, Zane? Uh,
2: not that I can think of off the top of my dome.
0: Okay, well, I might just go um, um, play a quick um, announcement and then we'll go on to covering some news articles um, for, Green, um, for, for Green Left Radio. You're listening to Green Left Radio on freeCR cr 855 AM.
3: The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks.
1: We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on
0: 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and... We're going to probably be talking about um, some news stories for the rest of the program. Um, I'll pass it on to Zane to cover the first one.
2: Yeah, so just a brief story coming out of the USA. There's a building uh has collapsed in Miami last night, a 12-storey apartment building, uh, it's sort of an L-shaped thing, and half of this massive building has just collapsed. There's security footage of it just just falling to the ground, so uh, it's not clear what caused that. Uh, I don't think there's any suspicion of terrorism or anything. I think it's a catastrophic fail of the building itself. Uh, the thing was built in 1981. Uh, it's been there for a while. Uh, it's obviously, I don't know, I, I, my, my suspicion as someone who works in construction is that there are, has been flaws in the original building, and now, 40 years later, the thing has um finally failed catastrophically as a result of that. Uh, but, I don't know, investigations will, I guess, show what the actual cause was. But in recent years, there's been stories of creaking and cracking apartment buildings here in Melbourne and in Sydney. And a lot of people are raising questions about the private certification of buildings because it used to be the case that the the state public agencies would inspect every building and check that they were up to scratch. Whereas these days you get private certifiers and it creates a um um what would you call it? Like a a it creates a, a, a risk that the building certifier who is being paid by a big construction company to inspect their buildings has a sort of interest in just ticking the boxes and telling them what they want to hear um the the independence of the building inspector is i guess brought into question because they're getting paid money and they don't want to be a troublemaker so um yeah, I'm not sure. The USA has obviously led the world in deregulation, and I wouldn't mind betting that even as early as 1981 there was deregulated building inspections happening in Miami, but I could be wrong. Uh But yeah, to me, the, when I see a 12-storey building collapse and probably 100 people killed, um, that's one of the first things that comes to my mind is... Private uh, inspections of buildings should be abolished, and we should go back to having public agencies doing that because it's important stuff.
0: Mm. All right. Now, um, I think that's a, a kind of good, a kind of overview of the kind of story. And I think, yeah, it's not really, a, it's not even a. There's, um, interesting enough. Um, one sort of thing i read in the media recently was, um, there was an article actually in the ABC, or it might have been the Age. Um forgot completely, but um it relates to, I guess, the whole issue of flammable cladding in buildings. And there was actually a, a, a bit of a, 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 story where um a young couple actually bought an apartment. And I think it was part in, part, it was somewhere in Melbourne. Um, I think maybe the eastern suburbs or, and essentially, um, they've basically been, they're basically stuck with this house, um, that they've actually found out recently has flammable cladding. And so, yeah, it's really a big, I think, issue, this whole issue of, of safety in buildings, especially with the whole, um, issue as asbestos, which is a long kind of standing issue. But then this whole issue, I guess, of flammable cladding.
2: Mm. Yeah. And you'll get people who are priced out of the housing market. They, they, Borrow vast amounts of money to buy an apartment that's brand new, and then the, the shoddy building has has not been adequately inspected, or it's been approved with dodgy materials like flammable cladding, and then there's no recourse for the owners. They can't sue the builder because the builder's like, oh well, I'm I don't have to provide a guarantee. Look, if you if you buy a house in the suburbs the little company that built that house has to guarantee their work for seven years. If you buy an apartment, it doesn't have any guarantee on it. Mm -hmm. So you, it's like buyer beware. It's like buying a used car. If there's something wrong with it, it's your problem. So Mm -hmm. people buy these houses and then you can't sell them because they've got a problem and then you've got to pay massive body corporate fees to try and fix the problem. So yeah, it's an absolute nightmare for people who have... yeah borrowed huge amounts of money, they're up to their eyeballs in debt trying to buy a house and get out of renting, and then they end up having to pay these huge body corporate fees to fix dodgy buildings. Hmm.
0: Now, the next kind of story I kind of want to get into, um, just for the last the last story that we'll probably do for our, for this program, is there has been, there's a recent article um, printed in Green Left, um, it's actually coming up in the next um, issue of Green Left and that is basically it's a bit of an analysis and an assessment of this recent minimum wage increase and um, this article has been written by Alex Bainbridge and interesting enough, um, so Alex kind of starts off this article um, about this kind of point and the Australian Financial Review um, Actually, which is really a kind of like an ex- a clear kind of example of a of an established um, media that really kind of speaks to the interests of the bourgeoisie and the capitalist class. Um, they kind of they went on a bit about about they were quite infused that um, three million Australians could soon, I guess, be millionaires and basically the argument is essentially that you know everything's kind of going well uh in the in the in the australian in the in the australian economy and so that's why there's going to be more than there's going to be 3 million more australian um australian um adults who're going to be millionaires and of course at the same time this is actually not really projected to happen um for another 5 years and of course it's based on a number of kind of assumptions that are kind of um um that uh, may not pan out now And, of course, there are 1.8 millionaires in Australia, which is a sizable proportion by global standards, as Alex kind of points out. However, the the rise in the number of millionaires is is primarily due to the steep increase in skyrocketing um, price of housing and, to some extent, the local share market. But, of course, this, the problem with this is the rise in house prices is only benefiting a minority, and really, the rate of um, home ownership um, is on a long-term decline, as skyrocketing house prices makes it harder for ordinary workers to pay property. Um, the percentage of household households renting rose from 23% in 1995 to more than 30% in 2018. Those that own their own home without a mortgage fell from 43% to less than 30% over a similar period. And, of course, almost two-thirds of households are renting or paying off a mortgage. Now, a few days before the corporate apologists told us how well off, we are, are, the Fair Work Commission ordered a modest two point five increase um to the minimum wage. Now, this barely takes the minimum wage above twenty dollars an hour and even costs this is going to be delayed by months. In fact it won't even be fully implemented until November. In fact that's just a just a bit of a recent um anecdotal gone experience. Generally when these minimum wage increases happen, they generally get implemented in the in the new financial year, because of the COVID nineteen pandemic, they're actually delaying it till November, which I actually think is a bit outrageous. Because I was actually generally the minimum wage kind of fair work sort of increases actually means that my sort of wage um for my childcare work actually tends to sort of have a one or two dollar increase um every now and then um every new financial year. But I guess that's probably won't take an effect until November. And I think the the the, the article kind of points out that the ACTU pointed out that big business and the, the federal government wants the rise to be even less. And, of course, outnumbering the millionaires, 2.2 million low-paid workers rely on the protections of the minimum wage. Wage rates would be much, much lower without a government imposed, um, minimum. A report by the Migrant Workers Centre released on June 15th well demonstrates wage theft and underpayment in the agricultural sector. The survey of more than, um, 1,300 backpackers reveals that a majority of farm managers are engaging in rampant wage theft and outright, um, abuse. And of course, the other, the other kind of thing is, um, is that the, the document actually is calling, called on the Fair Work Commission to amend the horticultural award to guarantee workers are paid at least minimum wage and, of course, demanding the Morrison government commit to a range of urgent me- measures to address this situation. But, of course, um, the the government is just doing the opposite. Um, it just basically just announced a new agricultural visa scheme for workers from South East um, um, Asian countries um, and of course, the 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 um, the argument is that the um this this visa has was demanded by the nationals because of the, the, the new um since the new free trade deal with Britain removed the compulsion for British visitors with working holiday visas to work eighty eight days in agriculture, and and of course um there is course you know the 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 big concern with this new visa is it will just basically allow. More exploitation, especially of workers from the South East Asian will be, um, East Asia will be basically super exploited by rural bosses who are used to paying substandard wages. And I think, you know, one of the kind of issues is really that the, 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 truth is that the wages and conditions in our, our culture are so woeful that workers see no reasons to put themselves out as a cause um Walton put it out, workers routinely do much tougher and more unpleasant jobs than fruit-picking. And I think the article, um, I guess the kind of conclusion of this is really that, you know, when it comes to the broader movements and trade unions, we need to kind of step up to push for real change, including a meaningful wage increase for low-paid workers, at least 15%, genuine kind action and a reform tax Taxation system in which billionaires and big corporations are made to pay their fair share um so yeah, you have any comments you'd like to add kind of saying oh, just that it's
2: i guess in the in the construction industry and and in some other industries that have got decent union density, wages are in the ballpark of double the minimum wage and actually that's the sort of wage that you need to live a comfortable existence and not be drowning in, you know, rent and not be able to save money, not be able to afford to buy a house. So, yeah, the, the minimum wage is woefully adequate and we're still suffering since the Accord years. Wages just keep going down and down because those... Those rises in the minimum wage don't keep up with inflation so yeah it's it's bad for the economy it's bad for workers and uh, yeah we've got to we've got to fight back, join your union
0: all right well, um I think we might um we'll probably conclude, I guess, the program here. We'd like to kind of thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, you can, and just a bit of a plug, you can read the article that we were just talking about or up online, which is up online on greenleft.org.au. Um, I just also want to make, I guess, a bit of a motivation that... Um, to still, um, support the, the radiophon, the FreeCR kind of fund, and we're still ra- trying to raise money, um, for FreeCR to keep community radio going, and you can donate online at freecr.org.au, and you can also call to donate at 94198377, or you can even send out, um, send a cheque or money order made out to FreeCR to PO Box 1277 at Collingwood, Victoria, three zero Um, So yeah, definitely we need to um, to do everything to keep Community Radio going so we can bring you kind of like the stories um, like we're we're presenting um, on Green Left Radio, like um, basically presenting the perspective of political events that is uncompromising and presents it from a socialist perspective and that is generally anti-capitalist and anti-establishment. Okay, well, um, thanks again for all our listeners um, and yeah, I hope this has been a good um, final show for Zane um, at this temporary moment, and we hope to see you again at some point, Zane. I'll be back at some point, for sure. All right. You are listening to Green Left Radio.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206.
2: Arise, you workers from this thumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstition, Serve all masses. Arise! Change henceforth the old tradition And spurn the dust to win the prize That's right, the commies are back Reds underneath your beds and that crap